0: Beautiful. Thank you, Patrick. I've said uh, many times over the years that being a pastor is one of the greatest jobs in the world. I can't think of another job when oftentimes I get to be at the hospital when a little baby is born. Oftentimes I get to be right up front here when those little babies are dedicated by their parents to the Lord. It's a wonderful blessing to uh, be able to be in the best seat in the house when a young bride and her young groom come together in front of God and their families to become husband and wife. And I get to see some of those milestones. I'm so often in the baptistry when someone makes that decision for Christ and decides to obey Him in Christian baptism and make it clear to the world they're following Him from that point forward. What a wonderful blessing. I can't think of another job that allows a person to do that. And all the way when someone is ushered into glory... Now, I've been there at times for some of you with family members or friends who have passed away, and that can be a heart-wrenching time, but also to be able to have that privilege of saying, Lord, here they are, they're yours now, and comfort the family in the midst of that devastation. That's a wonderful privilege. And one of the best things I get to do every week is to dive into God's Word. And I want to give you just a quick snapshot of what that looks like this morning, because I think it may be helpful for you. Uh, Each week I get to spend time in my study. Sometimes you might be walking by the hallway and you see me on my recliner chair with my feet propped up and surrounded by all these books. And that's my routine for digging into God's Word and preparing for these messages on a Sunday. And so recently with this Luke study, I've been using some Bible study tools that span four different centuries. And there's some wonderful tools available online uh, for free that you guys can dig deeper into a passage by looking at some commentaries that have been written in recent centuries. So I want to share some of these, my favorites, with you today. When I'm studying a passage like today will be in Luke chapter 4, I usually start with my study Bible. Uh, technically, this is Christine's study Bible. I kind of stole it from her a few years ago. And so some of you have a study Bible. This one happens to be the NIV study Bible. If you're not familiar with how a study Bible works, it's the whole Bible, but usually at the bottom of each page, there's some notes to explain what's being said in the verses up above, and also some cross-references so you can go to other places in the Bible and learn more about that topic. It's wonderful because at the start of each book, it gives a little overview of what the book's about, who wrote it, when it was written, and the purpose for it. So that's a great place to start. One of the oldest commentaries I use is this Matthew Henry commentary. It's kind of a beast. It's a a huge one. It's the whole Bible. This was written by a man who died in 1714. He died, think about this, some 60 years or so before our nation became a nation. And so this is my 17th century commentary. Matthew Henry's commentary is so well respected. The the, uh, uh, 1800s preacher uh, by, uh, who's called the Prince of Preachers? Remember who it is? Charles Spurgeon. Remember him? You've heard that name before? Charles Spurgeon, he actually loved Matthew Henry's commentary. When a guy in the 1800s loves it, you know it's old. Uh, My favorite 20th century commentary is probably Warren Wearsby. Several of you have a, a copy of Wearsby's commentaries. Excellent. Excellent way to learn God's Word and understand some passages better. My favorite 18th century commentary, or I should say 19th century commentary, is this one here by William Barclay. It's excellent. I'm going to share a little bit uh, from William Barclay's uh, commentary with you shortly. And then uh, also 21st century, one that was written just a few years ago, Chuck Swindoll's Living Insights commentary. Excellent new commentary. This one just came out last year. And so if you want to dig deeper in God's Word. You can do the same thing that I do. You don't have to be able to read biblical Greek. You don't have to be able to read biblical Hebrew. Just locate some of those wonderful commentaries and Bible study tools that are out there, and I think it'll be a blessing to you as you dive into God's Word. Amen? And with that, please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Have your uh, message notes handy along with a pen or pencil to jot down some notes along the way. Uh, Today, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Remember, In Luke chapter 4 last week, the passage we looked at, Jesus returned to his hometown of Nazareth where he had grown up. He had been a carpenter there probably for the better part of 30 years. And as he goes back to his hometown, he doesn't exactly get a a warm ticker tape parade welcome, does he? Uh, They don't exactly care for Jesus too much. They allow him to speak in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, uh, but they end up running him out of town on a rail. Even worse than that, they actually tried to push him off the cliff that was next door to Nazareth, trying to push him to his death on the jagged rocks below. And so Jesus' hometown homecoming didn't go very well. And so as we pick up in verse 31 of Luke chapter 4 this week, we're going to see as Jesus moves on from his hometown to other towns, particularly Capernaum, Jesus' ministry is going to be so much better received than it had been received in his hometown. Today we're going to look at four pillars of Christian ministry that Jesus demonstrates in the town of Capernaum. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. It is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, and it's going to cut us to the heart maybe at points today. It's going to reveal, Lord, the thoughts in our minds. And, Lord, you're going to reshape us Lord, you're going to chisel away. Maybe it's some things that shouldn't be there. And I pray, oh God, that you would just cause us to be changed by your word. Lord, if we are remaining unchanged when we are exposed to your word today, that's not on you. And that's not on your word. It's on us. So I pray, oh God, that we would take hold of the wisdom and discernment to receive your word as you have in mind for us to receive it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So here we go. We're going to dive into verse 31 in just a moment. But before we do, I want to give you a quick summary of these four pillars of Christian ministry that Jesus is going to demonstrate in this passage today. And I'm going to go through them very quickly, and I encourage you as we make our way through this passage this morning, just kind of keep your eyes peeled for these different pillars along the way. The first of those, the first pillar of Jesus' effective ministry was to teach the truth. Was to teach the truth. You'll find this in verses 31 and 32 that we'll read in a moment here. This was the first pillar of his ministry. He didn't uh, teach something that was a half-truth or even a 90% truth. He, he taught the, the whole, full, unadulterated truth, didn't he? That's one of the pillars of effective ministry. His second pillar he demonstrates in verses 33 through 37 and then again in verse 41. That second pillar is to confront evil. We'll see that specifically in this passage as Jesus uh, takes on some demon-possessed men at different times in the passage. The third pillar we'll see in verses 38 through 40. Jesus shows compassion. Jesus shows compassion. We're going to see that as as Peter brings Jesus to his home and his mother-in-law is sick and Jesus is going to show compassion on her and heal her. And then later that evening, people will be bringing all sorts of sick and diseased people to Jesus and they'll show compassion on them. Finally, the fourth pillar of effective ministry Jesus demonstrates in verses 42 through 44 is to spend time alone with God to spend time alone with God, such an important pillar of Jesus's ministry. So Uh, Keep your eyes peeled as we make our way through this passage today for those four pillars, because each of them are in there. We're going to start in verse 31. Say amen if you're there. Here we go. Then Jesus went down to Capernaum, a town of Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Ha! What do you want with me, Jesus of Nazareth? What do you want with me? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What is this teaching with such authority and power to give orders to evil spirits and They come out, and the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Now, we read in verse 31 that after Jesus was not so nicely escorted out of Nazareth, he went down to Capernaum. Capernaum is actually northeast of Nazareth. Normally, when we think of going down, we think of going south, right? Especially here in the Victor Valley, when we say we're going down the hill, it's not that we're just dropping in elevation. We're literally going south down the I-15. And so some people are kind of thrown off. Why would it say he went down to Capernaum when it was actually northeast of Nazareth where he had come from? And the reason is it is just an elevation drop. Interestingly, I didn't realize this till I was looking it up last week. We knew that the Dead Sea was the lowest place on earth, right? It's actually some, if I remember right, something like 1,500 feet below sea level that land around the Dead Sea. But north at the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum was on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is pretty low, too. Capernaum was 600 feet below sea level. So Jesus may have headed north, but he went downhill to Capernaum where he would do his ministry. After leaving Nazareth, Jesus never established a new home address. That's why Jesus would say later on in his ministry that the Son of Man, he himself, had no place to lay his head. And so Jesus, after he's booted out of his hometown, he never establishes a new home address, but he's in Capernaum more than anywhere else. And that was the home of four of his disciples, Peter and Andrew and James and John. So it seems like that was more of a home base for Jesus than anywhere else, even though he never had a new permanent address. Well, here in chapter 4, as Jesus arrives in Capernaum, he did what was his custom. On the Sabbath day, he goes to the local synagogue, and, and when he was given the opportunity to teach God's Word, he taught it. Verse 32, notice again it says, they were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. What does that mean? They were amazed because his teaching had authority. Didn't the rabbis' teaching that they were used to hearing Didn't the rabbi's teaching have authority? And the answer is, not really. Jesus' teaching was different because in those days, when a rabbi got got up to give his exposition on Scripture, here's kind of how it went. He would read that passage of Scripture, and just like we saw when Jesus was in Nazareth, after standing up and reading the Scripture, he would sit down, and everyone in the synagogue would know he's about to give an exposition, a sermon on that passage. And that rabbi would say something like this. In this passage, we just read such and such. Now, a hundred years ago, Rabbi such and such said this about the passage. But then later on, Rabbi what's-his-face disagreed and said this about the passage. And so he would Go back and forth saying what prior rabbis, rabbi so-and-so said about it, and then what rabbi what's-his-face said about it. And that's kind of how the sermon or exposition would go. Nothing from his own authority. You look at the Old Testament prophets, and the Old Testament prophets would start out what they were saying by saying, Thus saith the Lord. And so what the Jewish people were used to was a rabbi stepping up and having no authority on his own. He would quote some other rabbi that was better known, some other rabbi that had a higher and better reputation than he himself had, or even the prophets, thus saith the Lord. But Jesus steps up and he doesn't do any of that. He's not quoting rabbi so-and-so. He's not quoting rabbi what's-his-face. He's not even saying, thus saith the Lord. Jesus would step up and say, I say to you. And they were blown away. The word used here is amazed. They had never heard someone speak with such authority about God's word and the truth of God's word. Jesus was so different. They were amazed at his teaching. In verse 33, while Jesus is still in the synagogue, he encounters a man who is possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. Now, if you think about it, a synagogue is a rather odd place to find a demon-possessed man, isn't it? Would you expect to have a demon-possessed man here this morning? I just decided to go to church this morning. You wouldn't expect that. You would expect to see maybe a demon-possessed man loitering outside of a brothel. You might expect to find a demon-possessed man drunk in a bar somewhere. Maybe the local strip club. You'd expect to see a demon-possessed man there, but you would not expect to see a demon-possessed man in a house of worship, would you? But for some reason, the demon-possessed man was there that day. And it really got me thinking, why? Why was he there that day? Why was he there? The demon-possessed man cries out at the top of his voice, Ha! Not a very friendly hello, is it? Ha! Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Kind of a chatty little demon, don't you think? Had a lot to say. Let's take a few moments and see if we can figure out why this demon-possessed man was in the synagogue and why he confronted Jesus the way that he did. As I studied this passage this last week, I, I had this thought. I wonder if the devil set up this whole situation as a high noon showdown with Jesus. I wonder if the devil somehow orchestrated this whole thing with this demon yelling out with Jesus in a synagogue because the whole situation is just a little weird. I like how Bible scholar Craig Keener offers some commentary on this passage and some historical insights. He writes this, In Jesus' day, Demons were often associated with magic, and magicians tried to subdue other spiritual forces by invoking their names. Are you with them so far? So oftentimes, if you wanted to drive out a demon that was in a guy, you would invoke the name of a higher demon that could outrank the demon that's possessing that guy, and hopefully the demon that would outrank this demon-possessed guy would be able to cast out that demon. Now, personally, I don't think that makes much sense because once the lower demon's out, wouldn't the higher level demon go in there? Well, evidently not. Craig Keener goes on to say, if the demon is trying to subdue Jesus in this way, I know who you are was used to subdue spiritual forces in magical texts in those days. If that's what he was trying to do, his play doesn't work too well, does it? I really wonder if Satan had a little powwow with his demons in the days or the hours leading up to this confrontation in the Capernaum synagogue. And my cranks were turning over the last few days thinking about this, and I think maybe it went kind of like this. Uh, The devil calls all his demons together, and he says, Guys, I just want to tell you something. I want to kind of remind you of what's been going on here in recent months. Remember back a few months back, Jesus was fasting in that wilderness for for 40 days and 40 nights. And I was throwing little temptations at him all along the way. And at the end of the 40 days, remember what I said. I went up to Jesus and said, you're pretty hungry, aren't you? See that stone down there? Oh, there's one. Why don't you turn it into a loaf of bread? Because you've got the power to do it. And you know what, demons? Jesus didn't do it. He had the power to do it, but he didn't do it. And then remember what happened a few minutes later. I took him to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem and said, why don't you throw yourself off? You have the authority to call forth the angels to catch you so you don't even strike your foot against a stone. Why don't you show them what you've got here in Jerusalem? Why don't you show them your power? Why don't you show them your authority? Why don't you call those angels to do for you what you know you can call them to do because you have the authority? And you know what, demons? Jesus didn't use the authority. And you know what? In Nazareth, just a week ago on the last Sabbath day, Jesus was there and the people hated him. I I stirred up the crowd. I got them all riled up. And I got them so riled up, they pushed Jesus to the edge of the cliff and were going to push him off. And I was setting up Jesus to do a little Mary Poppins off the cliff. And Jesus didn't bite. He refused to show his power publicly in front of all of his hometown folks. He would rather just walk through the crowd and leave town. So I bet you guys, I bet you if we go into that synagogue when Jesus is starting to get all the people to come around him and all the people are starting to think maybe he's the Messiah, I bet you if we challenge Jesus publicly in the synagogue, he's going to back down again because he's been backing down ever since I've been tempting him. And so I believe it's a power challenge. Now, this demon that was possessing this man, he knew full well in a head-to-head match against Jesus, he would be obliterated. But something gave him the audacity to think he could spout off at the mouth like he did at Jesus in a public place and get Jesus to back down. So he spouts off. He says, Jesus, ha! what do you want with us? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Notice he's using Jesus, two different names. Jesus of Nazareth, Holy One of God, doing what they did in those magical rituals, calling them out by name, thinking somehow if you called them out by name, they would back down. And what does Jesus say in verse 35? Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Hmm. Jesus had had quite enough of this demon yapping So Jesus told him to shut up and get out. Shut up and get out. Verse 35 goes on to say, Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out. And this part's important. He came out without injuring him. Comments from over 300 years ago from Matthew Henry. Matthew writes, Christ showed what a power he had over the demon. And that he not only forced him to leave him, but to leave him without so much as hurting him. Whom Satan cannot destroy, he will do all that he can to, but this is a comfort. He can harm them no further than Christ permits. Nay, he shall not do them any real harm. I don't know about you, when I read that last sentence, I had to read it again and again. I want to put it on the screen for you today because that last sentence is, is particularly so insightful and I think so deep. I love those words. Satan can harm us no further than Christ permits. Nay, he shall not do us any real harm. I like to say it this way. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, nothing can come your way except that which can pass through the filter of love. That God has for you. He's got this love filter. And if Satan says, I want to do this to Carrie back there. Or I want, to, I want to do this to Christine or to Danny or to Julian. I want to do this to Haley or Kaylee. I want to do this to Hannah or Matthew. I want to do this to Marley or Lacey. I want to do this to him. If it can't pass through God's filter of love for you, it doesn't come your way. And you think your life is rough now, wait until you get to heaven and God gives you a snapshot of what he didn't allow to ever come across your path. I think we're going to be blown away. Wow! I thought life was rough with you, Jesus. I had no idea it was going to be this rough without you. I love those words. Satan cannot do us any real harm. Therefore, whenever Satan harms us, don't miss this, Whenever Satan harms us, it's not real, lasting harm. It's really only temporary. And it always brings a blessing on the end of it if you persevere through that trial because God is making sure if Satan lets it come your way, if Satan sends it your way, God is making sure that he's going to bless you in the end. And in the long run and in the big picture, it's going to be for your good and the good of those around you. So I love, and I never thought about it this way, that the harm that Satan gives to Christians is not real harm. But I think that's a beautiful way to say it. It's not real harm. God has something in store for us. He makes sure that harm is temporary. He makes sure it's not the end of the story, but a blessing is coming on the end of it. He has a master plan to work all things together for good. Amen? Now, when the demon threw the man down on the floor of the temple, the onlookers must have thought that the demon had seriously injured the man for sure. But, oh, no. Jesus wasn't about to let that happen. Jesus made sure that the man was not harmed by the demon. Now look at verse 36 again. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What is this teaching with such authority and power? He gives orders to evil spirits, and they come out. So in verse 32, Luke tells us that the crowds were amazed at Jesus' teaching. And here in verse 36, he tells us that the crowd was amazed at his authority and power. He exercised over demons. And here's the thing. Jesus didn't only teach differently than everyone else. He didn't talk about Rabbi so-and-so and and Rabbi what's-his-face and thus saith the Lord. Not only did he teach with authority differently than any other rabbi in Israel, he exercised demons differently than any exorcist in Israel. This I found pretty interesting, maybe you will too. In Jesus' day, exorcists usually had two methods for driving out demons from a person, or at least attempting to drive out demons from a person. Method number one, they would try to fumigate the demon out of the person. They would try to fumigate the demon. There are a few ways they, they tried to do this. They had some weird methods. Sometimes they would try to scare the demon out of a person. I guess kind of sneak up behind him and try to scare the demon out. Sometimes they would try to scare him out. It's what they would do at times. One popular method was to shove a stinky root up the demon-possessed man's nostrils. And they would shove up the stinky root, and they thought that it would smell so bad, the demon would be driven out. Okay? So they are trying to fumigate the demon with stinky roots in the man's nose. That's kind of weird. I came across in Barclay's commentary another method that was common in those days. Uh, this one is, is one of my favorites. It involved a shovel and a dog. Check this out. Their methods were weird and wonderful. An exorcist would put a ring under the afflicted person's nose. He would recite a long spell. I guess they thought they could bore the demon to death. He would recite a long spell, and then all of a sudden... There would be a splash in a basin of water, which he had put near to the hand, and the demon was out. A magical root called baros was specially effective. When a man approached it, it shrank into the ground unless gripped, and to grip this certain root was certain death. So the ground around the root was dug away, and a dog was tied to it. The struggle of the dog tore up the root. And when the root was torn up, the dog died as a substitute for the demon-possessed man. What a difference between all this hysterical paraphernalia and the calm, single word of command of Jesus. It was his sheer authority which staggered them. Well said. So sometimes they would use these crazy methods to try to fumigate the demon out of the guy, whether it's sticking a ring under the nose and waiting for a water splash or reciting some uh, long, boring chant, or or whether it's scaring the guy from behind, they would try to fumigate. The second method that was common in those days was this, they would evoke the name of a higher-ranking spirit. They would invoke the name of a higher-ranking spirit who had the authority to chase off the lower spirit. We talked about that a moment ago. But surprise, surprise, Jesus didn't use either of these methods. He didn't try to scare out the demon. He didn't get a stinky root in the man's nostril. He didn't say something that took half an hour to say and bored the demon half to death. So he said, you know what, I can't stand to listen anymore. I'm going to leave this guy. He didn't use any of these methods. Jesus simply speaks the command, come out of him. And what happens? When he says, be quiet. Because he has the authority, that demon has to be quiet. When he says, come out of him, because Jesus had the authority, the demon had to come out of him. Jesus didn't need to find anyone who outranked the demon because Jesus himself outranked the demon. Amen? Jesus himself was the king of kings and he was the Lord of lords. He outranked any spiritual force. So all he needed to do was speak the word. Without any of these crazy methods, he drove the demon out at the word of Christ. The demon had to flee. And the crowd in Capernaum that day was blown away. They were, in one word, amazed. Let's pick up in verse 38. Jesus left the synagogue, and he went to the house of Simon Peter. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Now we see. Jesus's first two pillars of effective ministry being carried out in that first section we looked at, verses 31 through 37. Jesus, number one, taught the truth, and then secondly, he was confronting evil. And here in verses 38 through 41, we see Jesus's third and fourth pillars of effective ministry. He shows compassion, and then he gets away alone with God. Now, in verses 38 through 34, 38 through 41, we see that third pillar. He shows compassion. He goes to Simon Peter's house, and uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law was living uh, with him evidently. She had this fever, and as he has this, she has this fever, they ask Jesus, will you please heal her? Will you please heal her? You know what? She had this miserable fever, didn't she? And I was asking this question in my study time last week. Why is life on earth so miserable sometimes? you ever asked that question? Why is life so miserable at times? After that tornado swept through Kansas, Dorothy says to little Toto, Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. And similarly, when Adam and Eve ate of that fruit and sin entered the world, very quickly Adam and Eve would look at each other and say, we're not in the Garden of Eden anymore. If you haven't noticed it the last time you went outside your home or the left, last time you left the church building, have you noticed that it doesn't look like the Garden of Eden? I, I've lived in Victorville area for 19 years. And I have never in those 19 years heard a single person say, wow, this place looks a lot like the Garden of Eden. <laughs> Atlanta maybe, but not Victorville. No one ever mistakes the Victor Valley for the Garden of Eden. Why? Because it ain't the Garden of Eden. You look down and, "Wow, well, that's a lot of brown." That's a lot of brown. You find someone with a lawn and the lawn looks beautiful until you realize it's plastic. Or those that have a real lawn, their water bill could be 3 or 400 bucks a month. This is not the Garden of Eden. It isn't. And all of the heartache we deal with in life All of the misery we deal with in life, whether it's someone dying too young. I mentioned to you a few weeks ago that I've had a lot of funerals recently. I just had one on Friday evening for a one-year-old. The mom went to a local hospital, and I've just heard one side of the story. I'm sure there's more to it, but she went to a local hospital. They diagnosed the little guy with an ear infection, sent the mom home. A little bit later, the little guy wasn't doing better. She went to another ER, and as she was filling out the paperwork, her little guy stopped breathing in her arms. And there that little casket was up front with this little guy that looked like a precious little doll that's no longer with us. Why does that family have to deal with that misery in this life? Why do we have to have friends and family tell us, I went to the doctor, he said, it's cancer. Why do we have to deal with MS like Melly does or deal with other diseases like others of you do or illnesses? Why do we have to deal with those things? Why do we have to look outside and say, man, I wish this was more like the Garden of Eden because it's really brown. Why do we have to deal with the miseries that we deal with in life? Well, life on earth, we can rightly blame Satan for the misery, can't we? We can rightly blame him because it was Satan that slithered up to Adam and Eve and got them to sin in the first place. So we can blame him. And we can blame ourselves because it was our ancestors, Adam and Eve, that allowed themselves to sin and and break that relationship with God and bring sin into this world, and it's now a sin-cursed world. But we can't just blame them because we would have done the same thing if we had been in their shoes. So we can blame Satan, and we can blame ourselves, but we cannot rightly blame God because He didn't make this world miserable, did He? He made this world perfect, he made this world without sickness and without disease and without devastating death. And so because of what Satan has done and, and because of what we have done, this beautiful paradise that God created has become sin-cursed. And so it's not his fault. So often people, so often even Christians, blame God for the stuff in this life. And we got to understand, it ain't God's fault. He didn't do this. We did this, but Satan came, excuse me, Jesus came onto the scene 2,000 years ago. Even though it was, it was in no way his fault that this world was sin-cursed. Even though it was in no way his fault that we deal with misery in this life. Even though it was in no way his fault he came onto the scene 2,000 years ago and he started to set right what we had made wrong. Even though Jesus is in no way responsible for the misery of sickness and disease that we face in this life, Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil and get this fallen world back on the right track again, didn't he? So there in Capernaum, after leaving the synagogue, he went to Peter's mother-in-law's house and destroyed the miserable fever that caused her to suffer. And one by one we read that people brought their miserably sick people, their relatives and friends to Jesus, and Jesus healed every one of them. It didn't matter what miserable sickness someone had, Jesus had a cure. Whether it was something as simple as eczema or something as severe as stage 4 cancer, Jesus had a cure for each and every one of them. He healed everyone that was brought to Him that evening. I like how Matthew Henry puts it. He says simply, Jesus had a remedy for every malady. Isn't that awesome to know our Savior has a remedy for every malady? And do you think it's just possible that Jesus today has a remedy for every malady as well? Nothing has changed. Jesus has a remedy for every one of your maladies today. There are two more things that I don't want you to miss from the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Both are pointed out by William Barclay in his commentary. First of all, he writes, Always Jesus was ready to help. His followers must be the same. Jesus did not need a crowd to work a miracle. Many a man will put out an effort in a crowd that he will not make among his own private circle. Many a man is at his best in society and at his worst at home. I don't know about you, but I read that last sentence, and it hurts. And I have to ask myself, does this describe me? Am I at my best In the spotlight, in front of crowds, at work, at church, and at my worst at home. Many a man is at his best in society and at his worst at home. That's more true than we'd like to admit. It's not just so called faith healers that do their best work when the video camera is rolling and the spotlights are on them. It's not just the faith healers that do their best work in the spotlight. So often you and I, it's the same thing. You and I so often can let our guard down when we're at home behind closed doors, but not Jesus. Whether he was in the synagogue in a crowd, and that demon-possessed man came to him in that crowd, or whether he was in the privacy of Peter's home, and they come to him and say, Jesus, will you heal my mother-in-law from her fever? The crowds didn't see that. The crowds wouldn't know about that. But Jesus was just as willing to heal her in private as he was to heal that demon-possessed man in public. Here's one more excellent point that Barclay makes. He writes, When Peter's mother-in-law was cured, immediately she began to serve them. She realized that she had been given back her health to spend in service of others. We would do well to remember that if God gave us the priceless gift of health and strength. Would you say those words with me? The priceless gift of of health and strength. One more time. The priceless gift of health and strength. He gave it that we might use it always in the service of others. I couldn't say it any better. I couldn't say it any better. If you are healthy today, you've got to see that as a priceless gift of God. And you use that health that God has given you to serve Him and serve others. If you are one of the blessed ones in this church, who had cancer at some point, and you were healed of cancer. That healing of cancer was a priceless gift given to you by God. And you need to use that priceless gift of your newfound lease on life to serve God and serve others. Some of you had a marriage that was falling apart, but God has brought you and your spouse back together. That is a gift from God. You need to serve Him and serve others with that priceless gift He has given you. Some of you have dealt with addiction in the past, and God brought you out of addiction to a place where you're clean and sober today. That sobriety is a priceless gift from God that you should use for Him and for others, just like Jesus would use each priceless gift that God allowed Him to have here on earth for others, just as Peter's mother in law, as soon as she is better, what does she say? Woo, I feel good. I'm going to go to the mall. I feel great. I'm going to go to the amusement park there in Capernaum. I'm going to go for a dip in the Sea of Galilee. None of that. The first thing she wants to do is to serve the crowd that's in her home. Wow, that woman has a gift of hospitality. And Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 you should take it easy. He lets her do it because she wants to serve. She wants to use that gift that Jesus had given her to be a blessing to those inside her home. What a wonderful testimony. The final pillar of Jesus' effective ministry was spending time alone with God. Luke tells us in verse 43, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. Mark records this for us as well, but he adds a few words. Jesus went out to a solitary place. Mark tells us he went to pray. He went to pray. So when we focus on Jesus' powerful ministry, we, we tend to gravitate uh, to the miracles and the signs and wonders. We love those parts where Jesus is opening the eyes of the blind and raising the dead, and the the, the widow's little boy literally sits up in the casket. That just blows us away. We love when he says to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth, and the guy that's been in the tomb for four days comes out with his mummy clothes on. And everybody is amazed. We love those parts of Scripture. And, well, we should because that's one of the pillars of Jesus' ministry, those signs and wonders and miracles. But we tend not to focus as much on this fourth pillar because it's not as flashy. Jesus was able to do all that he did and have such a powerful ministry in large part because he spent regular time alone with his father. He spent time in solitary prayer. He did that. It's the fourth pillar of his ministry that we shouldn't ignore. So there you have it. Jesus is four Pillars of Effective Ministry that will be your pillars of effective ministry as well. And my pillars of effective ministry. And together as a church, our four pillars of effective ministry. Once again, pillar number one is to teach the truth. We can't give in to the pressure of our culture to water down the word of God or to preach half-truths. Even if it means we take a hit with attendance, we cannot water down the word of God. We have to follow Jesus's in his steps by teaching the truth and standing on the truth of God's Word. We have to carry out this second pillar, which is to confront evil. So often churches get a little wishy-washy when it comes to sin, and they don't want to ruffle any feathers or hurt any feelings. We have to stand on truth, and we have to confront evil when we find it. Pillar number three, we have to show compassion just like Jesus did whether it's in our own homes or whether it's out in public, we have to show compassion for those that are hurting and those that are sick. And finally, pillar number four, we have to spend time alone with God. These are the pillars of effective ministry in Jesus' day. And they're the pillars of effective ministry in our day. We tell the truth. We stand on the truth. We confront evil. We show compassion. And we spend time, quality time, alone with God, and He will refresh us. He will fill us back up. He'll recharge our spiritual batteries and allow us to continue those first three steps yet again the next day as we stay close to Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for inspiring Luke to write down these powerful, powerful accounts of Jesus and what He did early in His ministry in Capernaum. Thank You, Jesus, for confronting evil in your day. Thank you, Jesus, for speaking the truth regardless of the consequences. Thank you, Jesus, for showing compassion to Peter's mother-in-law and each and every one of those that were brought to you later that day. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for demonstrating for your apostles and demonstrating for us the importance of getting away alone with you. Lord, so often we go through this life like chickens with our heads cut off, running from one task to another and not taking time to be with you. Help us to prioritize that time alone with you. Refresh us, teach us, strengthen us. Because this thing that you call ministry is not a 50-yard dash, it's a marathon. And we do not want to burn out. We don't want to fizzle out. We don't want to give up a moment early. We want to, just like Paul, finish the race. We want to keep the faith. And we want to receive, Lord, from You that crown of glory that You have in mind for each of these, each of us who serve and follow You. Lord Jesus, thank You for what You have in mind. Help us to fight that good fight to finish the course and keep the faith until you call us home. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand right.